presented by the Common Sense Institute. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to Common Sense Digest podcast. My name is Earl Wright, and I'm chairman of the board of Common Sense Institute. Thank you for joining us today. Today's conversation is timely as school finance continues to be at the forefront of conversations amongst policymakers, business leaders, and community members. Today's guests are lucky to have with us today CSI's Mike A. Laprino Free Enterprise Fellow, Dr. Brenda Dick Honer. Let me give you a little background on Brenda. She has spent a career working in education policy at the national and state level. She is currently the Mike a. Laprino Free Enterprise Fellow at Common Sense Institute. Recently, she served as a top advisor at the Colorado Department of Education. Brenda currently serves on the board of the Charter School Institute and on the Governor's Education Leadership Council. She also has a Ph.D. from the University of Colorado and has written several other reports for us, of which we're deeply indebted. Brenda, great to have you with us today. Hi, Earl. Thanks for having me. And also we have with us Dr. Terry Croy-Lewis. Uh, she is Charter School Institute Executive Director prior to uh, CSI also. She worked at the Colorado League of Charter Schools as a Vice President of School Quality and Support. Terry was the founder of High Point Academy, which opened in 2006, and served as the Executive Director and Principal of High Point Academy for eight years before High Point. Uh, Terry helped develop other charter schools in Colorado as an independent consultant, and as a consultant with a national organization focused on the creation of new charter schools. In 1997, she founded her first charter school. She got involved with Platte River Academy. And as I was talking to her, she did that while she was working on her dissertation, which is a Ph.D. out of the University of Maryland. And it's great to have you with us today, Terry. Thank you so much, Earl. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's get started, and let, uh, let's start, if we could. Uh, Terry, uh, what is the issue surrounding uh, the mill levy equalization for charter school institute, and, and why is it important, and how does this all work with the Legislative Interim Committee on School Finance that's, that's going on right now? Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk about something that is important to charter school institute students and their families. The issue that we have been focused on and advocating for over the last five years is really around mill levy override equalization. So what is that? First, let me step back and talk a little bit about charter schools because there are two different kinds of charter schools in Colorado or they're authorized differently. We have charter schools that are authorized by the district, the school district. And by authorized, I mean overseen by the school district. There are also schools that are authorized by the state or the Colorado Charter School Institute. We have approximately 260 charter schools in the state of Colorado. 41 of them are overseen or authorized by CSI, and the rest are all authorized by the charter um, the districts. In 2016-2017, the Colorado League of Charter Schools and other um, ed reform folks worked together to try to address the issue of funding inequity. So how charter school students are funded historically has been different than how your traditional public school counterparts are funded. And this is the one area that was the most egregious. We would see an issue around that mill levy overrides, which is something that local voters can approve for their district students, 
they um, had the ability to bring in additional funding, and that funding was not being shared with charter school students. In 2017, um, the legislature passed a bill that said, we need to share that funding, and we need to share it equally. So House Bill 1375 was passed, and in that bill, two things of note. One, district-authorized charter schools would have to receive the same mill levy override funding as the traditional public schools. Now, I want to ask a question. How much of a deficit was there? How much additional uh, funding per student uh, did that act create or allow? Excellent question. So in some districts, they didn't have mill levy override elections, and okay. so they had no mill levy dollars. So that would be zero, so there okay. was, they were on par. In other districts, it was upwards to $3,000, and that's on top of your per-pupil revenue. So you have an average of 9000 approximately student funding in the state, and you're saying is on average in a situation like that, my goodness, you're talking about well over a quarter funding difference. It, it's significant, and it's significant for some of our schools that are located in those districts that have high amounts of mill levy overrides. Okay, thank you. Please go, go ahead. Thank you. So in the district-authorized schools starting in the 1920 school year, are, would be requ- it would be required that they would receive the same funding. So what do we do about the 41 CSI schools? that so are Those are the state chartered. They are the state chartered. Okay. That's um, who CSI oversees. They cannot receive local funding. So the state had to create a mechanism by which there could be funding parity. So they created, within 1375, a provision for state-authorized schools to receive funding that would be on par with their local district. The state would fund that, and then it would be distributed equally to the schools. The challenge is that was not, there was no money, there was no funding actually um, allocated to that fund. And so, so the law was passed, but there was no money to fund the, correct. fund what they were hoping to uh, correct. Correct. Okay, how do we correct it? <laughs> So it's been a challenge. We have um, gone every year, first to the governor and then through the Joint Budget Committee and through the legislature, to have money put in that fund. And we've had some success, but let me get down to what, how much we have to go, how far we have to go. That first year that we did receive funding was in 1819, and we received $5.5 million dollars far from what it would take to fill that bucket. So and how we, much would it take to fill that bucket? Today it would be forty two million and oh we're receiving nine million. We have a long way to go. What solution is there to that that you all are trying to work on? Well that's a great question. So the the solution is that we should not have to do this year after year where we have to go and ask for full funding, of which we have done again this year and then are given maybe $2 million, maybe $3 million a year. We get further and further away from full equity. So we need to find solutions, and we are trying to work with um, the governor's office and the JBC and legislators to find solutions where there would be um, an allocation on a yearly basis that would ensure that all our students are receiving funding equity. 
I, I want to make certain we all understand this they're listening, and we're all interested in education because we all know that we have a huge deficit in this state of graduates from high school for what our needs are. And I'm a business person, and the business is growing, and we need educated folks at the higher education level as well as high school, and we've got a real deficit. And what you're talking about is, hey, uh, we not only have a deficit in people that are graduating, but the very part of our uh, education that is very, very successful, and Brenda has pointed this out in previous studies, has been the charter schools. And you're telling us that there are 40-some that are, in a comparative basis, underfunded. And every year, the question of how do we fund them in a equal basis to what the public schools would get or other institutions similar, it has to be a bill approved by the legislature and then signed by the governor. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Seems odd. Am I missing something that uh, it's not just an irregular part of the overall education package that we would want the kids to have an equal amount of funding? I think it should be, and yet it hasn't. Let me give you some other numbers that might... Um be important for listeners to hear. So out of our 49 school or 41 schools, 39 are not receiving anywhere close to what their district counterparts are receiving. We have schools in our portfolio that if they were in a a district school or a district authorized charter school would be receiving um, $2,900 in addition to their PPR. What they're receiving- PPR? Per pupil revenue. Okay, thank so you. So on top of what our schools are receiving are $430 per student. Now, Brenda, you have done a study on charter schools and talked about the impact of charter schools. How in the world do you make up that deficit if you don't have the money, equal to sums of money, but yet to get the kind of results that charter schools are getting? And I leave that question open to the two of you before we move on to other things about allocation. Thanks, Earl. Yes, I think it's it, this is a really incredibly important issue because, as you said, charter schools across the state are an important part of our educational system. They are getting great outcomes for students. They're also providing a variety of different models that different families want. We've got schools that provide a classical education where orchestra is a required class. We've got schools that serve the Ute Mountain Ute Tribe now, a charter school that is serving Ute Mountain Tribe members. Uh, we've got schools for charter schools for that are part of the charter school institute portfolio serving teen moms. So these are real schools that really provide a, a critical component to our network of schools within the state and our public system. And the overall spending on the state through our school finance act, so state and local funding that flows through the state legislature, is about eight billion dollars this past year, or I'm sorry for this upcoming fiscal year. No, and so you think about thirty million dollars as a portion of that. $8 billion, and it's really not asking much for the set of 41 schools that's making a huge difference for the kids and the families that they serve. Well, I'm, I'm still amazed, and I'm sure people listening to this are amazed. So, Brenda, let's come back to you now. There are other issues that we've got that at the present time, and you have really gotten focused on the allocation, uh, how, we, uh, how we construct, how much goes to the various districts and stool, schools, and would you help us out as to how it currently works and then where you see we, we have some challenges that we can make it even more effective as far as getting the money to the students that really need it, if it's additional funds that they need, and how the current system maybe has some uh, faults and how we hope to have some studies, I guess you're going to tell us about, 
that would improve that so our education outcome would be improved. There are a number of issues that are important right now. This issue of mill levy override equalization for charter school institute schools is certainly a very important issue right now. And another important issue that the legislature is considering is they have an interim legislative committee that's meeting on school finance right now. So they met for the first time in August, and they're meeting monthly until session starts in January. And the committee is looking at various ways to revise the school finance formula to make it more student-centered rather than district-centered. And so currently, there are a variety of factor, we're called factors within the formula that are taken into consideration district characteristics, such as district size or district um, uh, the cost of living within a district. And legislators on both sides of the aisle, there's really a bipartisan effort here to try to improve the funding formula, want to think about how we can make more student-centered by looking at student needs and thinking about what kind of characteristics of the student are important for us to understand and know so that we can appropriately fund schools to serve those students. So for example, thinking about how can we better count how many students are in poverty, which we know affects their ability to learn and it costs districts and schools more to serve those students. Uh, We're trying to think about how to count students who are English language learners and and how much money those students need. Special education students are also another population that need additional resources. And so on the topic of students in poverty, uh, the Legislative Interim Committee has commissioned a study to think about how we better count that population. And so currently we count them by looking at the free and reduced price lunch program. Brenda, I'm a little bit uh, taken back by, I guess, the criteria because I don't understand the, the magnitude of the criteria. Can you tell me what percent of the overall K-12 through student body uh, is subject to a free lunch program? About 40.2% of students are eligible for free or reduced price lunch currently. Oh my, my goodness, I had no idea it was that large. Uh, well, you also mentioned uh, uh, adding to the criteria or adjusting the criteria that's currently in place with uh, the English as uh, second uh, language, and there's a lot of students. Oh my goodness, I guess in Aurora, I, I know I'm going to say it wrong, there's 40 different languages, I believe, or something like that that they have in the Allura public school system. And what do we have as far as students, uh, student population, that is English is their second language? Yes, about 13% of the state students are English language learners. And the state legislature did add additional funding for that group of students in the last legislative session. And I think we'll continue to look at and ensure that those resources are adequate for that that growing population. Yeah. So you're suggesting then that we really need to broaden the criteria of how we decide funds will be distributed uh, at the state level uh, beyond just the free lunch program as a foundation. What, what's wrong with that, by the way? Why, why doesn't that work uh, as well as it should? Can you explain the, for all of us that where there's some issues? The free reduced price lunch program was really started as a, a way to address child hunger and provide meals to those students. It's a it's a paper form that families fill out at the start of the school year to enroll their children in this program, and it's administered locally. And so those can, some families choose not to fill out the paper. There's a kind of inconsistent data that sometimes rolls up from localities to the state, and overall is a burdensome pro- 
uh, program in terms of tracking it for this purpose and tracking it for school finance. And so many other states have looked at other measures to consider how to better count and account for student poverty within communities and understand that it's a, a bigger issue than just a free and reduced price lunch uh, program. I think for all of us that are listening to this, what the dynamics of education is a lot different than I think when I was in school where uh, if we had a student or two students that were trying to learn English, well, good luck. You know, they'd learn English and the English, the teacher would, you know, be patient. But now we're talking about kids in schools where I guess maybe uh, one out of eight uh, could very easily in a classroom of, you know, 20 or 30 could not uh, understand. And I think in Aurora we have classrooms where you have 10 or 20 kids uh, out of 30 that are f- f- uh, second language is English. So, hey, thanks for taking on the task as far as uh, ed- educating us on it. Terry, we talked about this uh, mill levy and mill levy adjustment. If you could just be the omniscient, benevolent dictator and revamp the school finance funding formula, what would you do? I would focus on students. I would focus on student-based funding. We get lost in school finance with um, focusing on districts and adults and not on the students. We need to have funding parity for all students. As a parent of five students or five children who have gone to all different schools, and parent choice has been so important to me, and all the parents that are out there that are enrolling their students in what the school that's best aligned for their student it should not come down to money. They should not come down to the fact that these parents have made a choice to enroll their student in a school that meets their needs and they're getting less funding for doing so. Well, is that are you speaking code to me and <laughs> others of us that are listening that every student it, with some adjustment to the uniqueness of their situation ought to start with the same base amount. It doesn't matter if they're a state charter school or a district charter school or a public school that's, that's basically uh, you know, uh, in your local neighborhood. There, there ought to be a base amount, and then you all are suggesting that then there would be modifications to that depending upon the special needs of the student. Is that Am I hearing that correctly? That's correct. There's two, two levels to it. First, governance of the school should not matter. So funding should be the same if it's a charter school, an innovation school, a traditional school, a magnet school, or a BOCI school. Funding should be the same. For the student enrolled in any one of those schools, the factors that Brenda has talked about should be considered, and we need to have funding that's based on the student needs. Okay, now both of you have got a different arrow in your quiver here you're talking about. You're talking about the middle levy adjustment, and I think you're basically saying, hey, with that, we ought to, the foundation of that, we ought to be, have equal funding with adjustment. Brenda, you're talking about, hey, we have got a formula in place that needs to, you know, some changes need to be c- considered. Summarize that would for me, if you would, please. Brenda, is this the, it needs to be changed so that it's more equal across the board and meets the needs of the students. I may be asking you to repeat what you said, but I think it's worthwhile for everybody listening. 
I think it's about, as Terry said, shifting the formula to be student-focused instead of district-focused. We have an outdated funding formula that really prioritizes the characteristics and the needs of school districts as opposed to students. And I think that regardless of school model type, there does need to be an equitable amount of funding to serve those students. Um, And that might look differently school to school in terms of the student populations, but school model itself should not be a determination of the funding level. If I heard you correctly previously, so if there's language, English is a second language, doesn't matter if it's a charter school, doesn't matter if it's a public school, the same additional funding for that should be at the charter or the public. Is that fair? That's right. We know that certain students are are costing it more to educate because they have higher needs, and that's fine. We just need to make sure that we're associating those funding and those costs with those students so that they have the resources and schools have the resources they need to serve those students. You mentioned something that I uh, there's there's more to the uh, see the economic issue just than income. That you know poverty has special can have special needs associated with it, and that ought to be taken into account. Where some people may be making thirty four thousand or fifty four thousand, and their particular needs may not be the same as other people who have a different, uh, I guess, a measurement of poverty or impact of poverty. How does that work? And and, you're, and I know it's, it could be defined by anybody, but you're an expert. You've been in this area for some time. Explain to us what you would hope that would be accomplished in, in a better assessment of poverty and the impact on education. I don't really have an answer to that, Earl. I'm sorry. But I think that that's what the Legislative Committee has commissioned a study on. And I'd okay. be really curious to see what that study says and how okay. we can better capture the dynam- the different dynamics that play into poverty. Um, we know that there are other factors that, uh, that we know at least predict student success, such as the college education level of families um, of their parents. And so, you know, I know other states have, have considered looking at those types of factors and how they weigh funding for students, which is interesting. Um, but I'm re- just really curious to see what this this study that the legislature's commissioned will come out and say, and they will have specific recommendations this spring for how Colorado as a state can better fund our students based on specific student need. So we're tilling new ground to some extent. Yes, yes. It's, it is, I'm optimistic that we can come out of these conversations with a really more modernized and student-focused funding formula. It's kind of exciting. Actually, Colorado's on the forefront of education. What a what a novel thing for us to you know experience. I'm pleased to hear it, Brenda. I, I want to stick with you for a second, if I could. Um, can you uh, tell us, uh, uh, give us a preview, if you would? Common Sense Institute release on school finance, the work you're doing there, and what uh, what we ought to be looking for, and and, and what it might be occurring. Yes, thanks, Earl. I wanted to just give a short plug for the upcoming report called Dollars and Data, which the Common Sense Institute released a couple years ago, and we are just providing an update of those numbers so that the numbers can be more current. And it's a great resource if you're looking for any basic information on school finance in Colorado. It'll provide information on the amount of funding each school district receives in different buckets from local revenue, from state revenue, federal revenue. And what's unique about our report is that we do report out those other categories like federal grants and state grants, which is not included in the School Finance Act funding formula that comes from the state. So you have the School Finance Act which provides 
in 2019-20, about $8,500 per pupil on average across our 180 districts. Of course, that varies depending on the district. It can be higher or lower. Um, but you know that's the number that comes through the formula we've been talking about. Uh, there's also other funding on top of that formula, like mill levy overrides, which Terry talked about, and state grants for gifted and talented students, vocational education. There's federal grants. Um, there's capital grants as well for buildings. And so if you really consider those kind of the all-in revenue, that's about $14,750 per pupil up from that 8,500 number. So there's quite a bit of other revenue that you know may not be going directly to students as some of it is capital costs, but could be thought of as our society's total investment in public education. And so it's just another way to look at our education funding system and to really kind of understand all of the different expenditures and, and revenue streams that come into education. So 14, a great report. $14,000 a student absolutely surprises me. I had no idea. I, I knew there was something like eight or $9,000 per student, but with all the, how does, how do the federal grants get distributed? Do they get distributed on an equal per student basis or are there special, they go to special needs. So certain districts get more per pupil than others. How does that work? Yeah, the grant programs have are targeted needs, so they're specific to things like vocational education, gifted and talented. There's extra dollars for English language learners. Special education students receives um, a, a portion of that grant funding, um, and then so it depends on the students demographic or sorry the school's demographics of how much money of those grants they receive. And is that something that's the federal government decides to give each other each year, or is this kind of like what I was talking to Terry about uh, earlier about the additional funds that come to the 41 charters, the state's charter schools? These are, it's a mix. There's what we call formula grants that are distributed to, so for example, for English language learners, depending on how many students you have, you get a set amount of dollars for those students that meet that criteria of learning English. Um, there's also competitive grants, too, that the federal uh, department administers through the state, through Colorado Department of Education. So, for example, for schools that are struggling to uh, get good uh, performance from their students that are kind of lower performing, they can apply for grants to help them with a variety of improvement activities. Okay. I'm pretending for a second, so pretend with me if you would. I'm a principal of a school or a superintendent of a school district. Can I count on these programs year in, year out? Because I've got to hire people. I've got to get facilities available. I have to have physical facilities. I have to have, you know, people with a special training available for some of this. Can I count on these federal programs year in and year out as probably as much as I could count on a state program? Yeah, I would say the – and Terry, you might have more insight into this too – is I, the majority of funds are formula, and I, the competitive grant fund bucket is smaller than the formula fund. So, yes, I would say year to year, schools have a good sense of their budget, uh, and there is um, generally kind of a pot of extra funding they can apply for that uh, tends to be smaller, I believe. There are state and federal grants that schools and districts can apply for that would um, be for a certain period of time. Okay, and so, so a specific you, period of yeah, time. Yeah, you would have to hire people with that understanding that this grant would last a certain amount of time. All right, great. I can't thank uh, two of you uh, enough for taking on, a, I think, one of the most important topics we have in the state, that's education and the funding of it, and explaining a very tough topic, and that is how in the world do we, you know, how does the money get distributed, and where is some of the inequity if it does exist, and how we're trying to correct it, and 
thank you so much the, for all the, the careers that you've given and dedicated to this topic. I, we're a very lucky community. Do you have any final, any final words you'd like to share with us, Terry? I would say that this is our number one issue that we are advocating for. There are other funding inequities that are down the line that we need to address um, for charter schools and CSI schools that our schools just uh, students don't have access to. But this is an area that needs an attention right now, and I'm hoping that we will see that in this what, next what can What can the average person do to help you? The 41 states charter schools that, that have this kind of I refer to it as deficit deficit support from the state. Same thing we tell our schools, contact your legislature, uh, your local legislator, have them address this issue, talk to them about this issue, ask them if they know about the issue, and then go visit a CSI charter school. Um, you will find that they're doing, we're doing great work in our schools, and our students deserve what every other public school student and has. And where do we state. go to find out where a CSI charter school might be next to us? Go to our website, Colorado Charter School um, Institute website, and you will find the location of all the charter schools um, in our portfolio. Brenda, please, any final thoughts you'd like to share with us? Well, I couldn't agree more with what Terry said, and thank her for joining us on this podcast. And if you want to check out the upcoming Dollars and Data Report, it will be on the Common Sense Institute website at the end of September. Thank you very much. And for all of you that are listening, I think uh, the charge is, hey, let's get involved particularly in education, I want to get better if we do. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsenseinstituteco.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on podcatchers everywhere or on our website under the podcast tab. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Institute.